Welcome back to the podcast, Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott and I am the host. Today's episode is called Antigone, King Noah, and the Modern Church. Thanks for coming back to listen to another episode. For today's episode, I was invited onto a newer podcast, High to Collab and Beyond, where we discussed the story of Antigone and compared that with King Noah and the modern church. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hello there, I'm Brock, and thanks for giving my new podcast, High to Collab and Beyond, a fighting chance. I intend to make it worth your while. In this podcast, I talk about things, sometimes stories, history, or even game theory. Today, we're going into game theory. First, within the scope of the gospel, the part where we hide a collab, and then examine the same concepts in the wild or outside of the gospel, the part where we go beyond. Picking up what I'm putting down, then buckle up, because I'm excited. Today, we actually get to have an episode with my favorite podcaster and one of my heroes, Scott Dyer, and he gives a podcast called Ram Yumtum Ruminations. He was the one who inspired me to think, oh, maybe it's actually possible to have an interfaith marriage or an interfaith relationship. And he's the one who inspired me to think that the things I had to say might be valuable somewhere because they're not valuable within the constraints of the church. So maybe they're valuable somewhere else. And that's kind of where I started my podcast, actually. That means a lot to hear you say that. I, I don't know that I should go on a pedestal as a hero, but I definitely, I have lots of thoughts and I like to share them. Well, all heroes are mortal. They all bleed. At least you're not a god, right? <laughs> that wasn't the threat. <laughs> Today, I wanted to talk about this one. I think actually up to this point, I would consider it my magnum opus. Okay. Because I think it is most important discovery in my life and most important conclusion that I've come to apart from just realizing that my thoughts matter, which is hard to come to. Um, at least for me, it was hard to come to within the church since we were supposed to echo the thoughts of the prophet. Other people can have different experiences and that's okay, but that was mine. And so this one is actually kind of where I got that idea that my thoughts might matter. Everybody is entitled to their thoughts and, and to make their own conclusions. Unhealthy systems tell you that you can't think. Is there a time when you shouldn't think? Now now I'm just getting into the hypotheticals, but is there a time when, when you shouldn't think, or is this an unnuanced belief? I oftentimes get into like a flow state, like, you know, when I'm driving, where I'm not conscious of, of myself thinking. So I think there, there are instances in our lives where we don't have like, distinct thoughts or, or unique ideas. We just kind of get into like robot or autopilot mode. Maybe, yeah. A lot of times I've heard an unexamined life is not a life worth living, right? And the question is, how far does that go? Just occurred to me. That was uh, Socrates. I do think it's ironic. I don't know if you knew this, but Socrates gave a speech or is credited with the allegory of the cave. 
Yeah, he didn't he didn't write um, anything himself. Yeah, Plato related the allegory of the cave according to his um, what he learned from from Socrates. Do you know why it's tragically hilarious? Why? He prophesied his death. He said, someone who forces enlightenment or brings enlightenment upon a group that does not want to be enlightened will be killed. And he was killed. In the, in the ancient world, a lot of the philosophers, you know, Rome, Greece, they were used as scapegoats. They were oftentimes counselors for the royalty. But when something didn't go the way it was supposed to, they were used as scapegoats. Uh, we we kind of romanticize them now looking back in the past but they were not the majority and they were not they were not always well liked they wouldn't be the majority they couldn't be the majority because we romanticized them we romanticized the unique ones right (laughs) the ones that stood out from their time i mean kind of like joseph smith but um this actually relates a little bit with what we're talking about today but it's a bit more tangential um, the fact of, you know, the idea of a revolutionary or someone sticking to their principles above following rules. That was what hit, led him to his death. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before that, I think we have to at least come to some sort of consensus or some sort of baseline, which is why I want to talk about the prisoner's dilemma. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of the, pr- the prisoner's dilemma. Well, if the listeners haven't, it's easier to Google it, but I'm going to try to describe it anyway. So I'll read, I'll read the story, right? So two people are arrested for a crime. The specific crime is irrelevant, and it doesn't even matter if those people committed the crime, right? Two people are arrested for the crime. The only way that the people or that the police have to arrest the prisoners for that crime is getting them to rat the other person out. And in order to motivate them to do that, there are four rules placed on them. Number one, they can't communicate with each other, which means they can't collude. They can't plan things beforehand. Number two, if both prisoners stay loyal to each other and don't say anything, they'll both be in jail for a year. And that's a total of two years between the two of them. That is the best possible outcome of all outcomes. The time where there is the least amount of jail time, right? The second one or the second option that they have, in, which is the third rule, if both betray the other person, then each of them will only be in jail for two years, which is the worst possible outcome because that's a total of four years between the two. But if one is loyal and the other one betrays, then the loyal prisoner is going to be locked up for three years, but the betrayer gets out of jail for free. So that's a total of three years between the two. And so no matter what the situation is, if it was you or me, sorry, Scott, I'd probably rat you out. <laughs> I, I sleep at night knowing that I would probably rat someone out. I don't know how. I guess I'm just okay being a horrible human. I, I like to think that I wouldn't say anything. Yeah, that would be really cool. But I don't know. I'm not in the situation. For me, a, th- um, a thought experiment like this makes me examine society and i think it's it's a statement on just like culture as a whole people are incentivized to take advantage of each other for their own personal gain in the culture like that's actually why it describes capitalism so well and why it can predict so many economical choices right that's why it predicts that the lowest priced good gets sold the most i think is really interesting And it is a very good expression and example of the way society today works. 
another example here. It's another dilemma, I think. Um, have you seen The 100 or Squid Game? I have seen Squid Game, but I have not seen The 100. Okay. It doesn't... Both of the two have the same sort of story. Okay. They're both... There are two people, representatives. Um, they're two leaders, and they're friends. Mm-hmm. And there's a knife place between them, basically. And they have a time limit. And one person must walk out alive, and one person must be dead at the end of that time limit. And the question there is, would you do that? Would you, like, and, and if if they don't, if both are still alive at the end of the time limit, they're both killed. That's the other rule. And so with that being the situation, that's a bit more drastic of an example. Both of those situations lead me to ask, you know, if you're the one that walks out alive, is it your fault that you're a murderer? Yeah, I I like how this sort of a dilemma was presented in Squid Game specifically, because that was that was front and center on the mind of the character. You could see the the one friend because they were best friends kind of going into this the one Mm -hmm. was ready to betray him and did betray him and the other multiple times yeah multiple times and then the other the main character through the fight he decides that he doesn't want to even play the game anymore and so he's he decides to change the rules Um, i won't say exactly how it ended spoiler alert you know for those that that haven't watched it that do want to watch it i was left satisfied with with the main character's decision I didn't like how they ended the show. <laughs> yeah. But I liked I liked the build up. I liked the dilemma leading up until the climax. They often the case in a show like this, they overtell the story after the climax is resolved. Yeah. And I think that's what they did in Squid Game here. So I, that's totally a tangent side note, but <laughs> it, it is a tendency these days to give the story and then give the interpretation thereof, right? Yeah, that's a hard thing. One one thing that's interesting that I hadn't thought of until you brought this up is that as far, maybe this is a spoiler, so you can tell me if it's a spoiler and we can erase it. Spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Squid Game. At the end, the friend that has decided that it's kill or be killed, mm-hmm. what I see is that he can't live with evidence to the contrary, mm. which is why he decides that he must die because his friend won and knowing that it's kill or be killed and he's killed so many people he has to stick to that system because he's unwilling to see himself as a murderer he he's offloading all of the situation on someone else maybe maybe that's a wrong interpretation i think part of it was a he he lost and he knew that it was either both of them get killed for not finishing the game or only one of them die. And I think he ultimately made a sacrifice in the end so that his friend could live. At least that's how I saw it all play out because uh, the main character, he just, he just stopped. Like he ended the game and was started walking away and they made a point of talking about like, Hey, he can't do that. He, you know, they have to finish the game and he wasn't going to finish. And then it was his friend that, that committed suicide so that the main character could win. That may have been what happened. I, I finished that. I finished that episode at like four in the morning. I'm a binge watcher. You're not. I'm a binge no, I'm watcher. not a binge watcher. I lose attention really quickly in shows, and I have to, 
I have to pace myself. It really frustrates my wife when we have a show that we're watching together because <laughs> I'll watch one episode and I'm like, all right, I'm ready to do something else or watch something else. And and she's like, no, we need to watch the next episode right now. And I'm like, I can't. I, I, <laughs> as much as I want to, I can't do it. That's my addictive habit. Every month or two, I get this itch in my soul. It's like I need to binge something. <laughs> and I'll, I'll lose a night's sleep, and then I'll just go back to life as, as normal. It's pretty funny. Either way, it does bring us back to the question of, if you killed someone to stay alive, whose fault is it that you're the murderer? Or if you betray someone, whether a friend or not, and lie about them being involved in a crime, Whose fault is it that you're the liar? I think there are a lot of ways to look at it. There are a lot of there are some people who believe in total agency or moral agency, which would say that it's 100% our fault, even though the game was set up, and so we suffer the consequences the same as if it wasn't, which may or may not be true. It's like a deontological way to look at things where this is the right course of action, regardless of the circumstances, you always have to act this way. That's kind of like a, a duty-based view that you're talking about. That's agency. That's the free will argument. If you want to go in on the other side of the spectrum with complete determinism, then you would say just tweak the system or tweak the game a little bit, right? And so it's neither of the prisoner's fault. It's not the murderer's fault that he's a murderer. It's the game's fault that he's a murderer, right? Which I think also has valid arguments. I, for me, it would come down to motive for the characters being there throughout the whole. I mean, I, let's, we'll go back to squid game. Every single competition, they weren't fighting against each other until the tug of war. So none of their actions got someone else murdered. Well, with the caveat that some people were trying to, to harm other players, but the main character and his friends, they were just trying to survive. And then there was a point in the show where suddenly it was a competition. You had to become a murderer. You had to become a murderer. You had to take advantage of your neighbor or of the, the other person in order to continue on in the game. And so there was a shift in, in the idea there. And so for me, even in those scenarios, like it would come down to motive. And, and my, my favorite bit was the, I, I want to say Sue Young. I can't remember his name. I'm going to pull up IMDb because I. Which character is this? I don't remember names. The rich engineer, the rich and broke engineer friend or the main character? The main character, uh, C. Young, I think was his name. I don't know. Number one, like the, the old man. When the two of them are playing the marbles game. Oh, yeah, I remember that. The, the moral dilemma that they were confronting there was the fact that the main character didn't want to kill, but he's paired up with the guy who's at the end of his life. And the person that he's playing against in the end stages of dementia. Yeah, in the end stages of dementia, he's barely there. And so is it is it okay? Like and this was the first time that he had to like actively try to take someone else's life or to beat them and they would die. And it had been his friend from the beginning. It had been his friend from the friends. beginning. They've been talking and, and together this whole time. And then he's confronted with this idea, like, what should he do? Like he wants to survive. 
But in order to do that, he has to kill his friend. But his friend has dementia. His friend's going to die real soon anyway. And so it's it was it was interesting because it's like, does the fact that his friend has dementia or that his friend is is close to death, closer to a natural death than he is, does that change the equation? Does that suddenly make it right? He didn't want to take advantage of his friend initially, but then ultimately decided to do it. And he's he yeah, he started cheating in the game in order to win. And it was it was interesting because it was one of the times where he compromised his morals up until this point. And I think that affected his decision end of the show in the climax because he saw what compromising his morals did to him as a person so that in the climax he ultimately was not going to compromise his morals. That's an interesting and thought of that. I I liked the show. I I liked the way it made me think. It was a good show. I think a ton about it other than specifically trying to come up with an example of the prisoner's dilemma that was simpler than <laughs> than the four, you know, four result quit prisoner's dilemma. It's a theme that pops up in media all the time. Have you ever read the book The Road? No. It's a fantastic book. There's parts of society, there's aspects of us as a culture that that cannibalize other parts of culture for their own gain. Oh yes, that's true. Well, this is the same sort of theme that they're discussing where um post-apocalyptic those that are still alive have turned to cannibalism in order to survive and so it's like right there in your face but it's it's real interesting because it's the same it's the same dilemma it's the same problem that they're confronting it's at what point is it okay for me to abandon my morals for my own survival anyway we're getting off in the weeds here sorry we're that, getting- <laughs> that is off into the weeds no no worries um one of my thoughts i guess specifically with this is that it is at the center as you've said of public discourse of stories it's at the center of a lot of the things we do if you look at hunger games that was the whole thing right that was the central theme of you know at what point do we abandon our morals and i think that's an independent thing if you look at it more from a systemic approach you could see hunger games or divergent as a criticism of a system that gives you no other choice or squid game as a criticism. And that was actually what the author intended it to be was a criticism of capitalism because he felt like people within capitalism have no other choice, but to betray and to backstab. And so squid game was just hyper capitalism, I think is a very interesting critique whether or not I agree or to what what level I agree with it or you or other people agree with it is interesting. Either way, my, my point was to say it feels like everybody believes in agency at some point and everyone believes that their choices are influenced by outside systems at other points in their lives. Looking at it that way, asking where's the blame or how much of the blame lies in different places, I'll say personally. If we're talking about the prisoner's dilemma, I think that the amount to which the statistical probability of a certain outcome is affected by a system, that's the amount that the, that the system gets the blame. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, if that means that people in the church save more money, like 2% more of their income, then I say the church gets 2% credit for the amount of money they save right but they're taking 10 so 
Yeah, <laughs> we can talk about that in a different time. But um, but or if the church increases the amount of service that me- that people that members give over other people in the world by five percent. So let's say everybody else in the world gives a hundred hours a year, and the people in the church give hundred five. Just example. Um, the church gets to say, look, we can take credit for five, the 5% of the difference we're making. The culture within the church, I don't think is inherently bad. I think there are aspects that probably need to change within the culture. But as, as far as creating communities that look after each other, or help each other and, and, you know, through the rough times, I think they do a great job. A lot of people have asked me about the church's redeeming qualities and the one that I can stand by any day of the week is that they have a community that I think places, I think places with communities are shrinking as the communities are being divided more and more and turn into echo chambers. I think that community is the one thing that I can say that the church contributes and it can take credit for that. There are probably more things for you. So in the story of Antigone, um, we can relate the story of Thebes, which is a war-torn city-state in which two heirs to the throne die, leaving their uncle Creon to rule in their stead. Creon, the uncle, buries one of the two brothers, but leaves the other one unburied, marking him as a traitor, um, and decrees that on pain of death, none shall bury the traitor. Antigone knows the gods have demanded the burial of the dead, and faithful to the gods above man, attempts to bury the brother in secrecy, but is caught. Upon discovery, she's condemned to live entombment, entombment, or in other words, placed in a cave until she starves, thirsts, or hangs herself to death. Once again, Antigone reaffirms that she was obligated to honor the gods. Um, Creon's son, Haman, is engaged to and in love with Antigone and pleads with his father for her pardon. Creon, however, feels he must stick to his first decision, even if it's not the best one. He is, after all, both king and general. Anyone doubting of his laws or battle commands could be fatal to both he and his city, him and his city. Um, as a result, Creon continues in his initial resolve. After other visits, he's convinced of his wrongs and hurries to rescue Antigone, only to see that Antigone has hung herself. His son has committed suicide after finding his love dead, and Creon's wife has committed suicide after finding her deceased son. Creon is condemned to live the rest of his days in misery. And I think this one can come back to the same question. Whose fault is it that Creon lost his family and Antigone died? The decisions that he made ultimately led to this. And so, yes, he's at blame, certainly. But that would take the deciding power out of his son who who committed suicide and that's true the wife so so it's a little bit nuanced but yeah i think he does he does hold blame for his decisions but it was ultimately these other people's choice as well to act the way that they did at the same time as you were saying if antigone hadn't disobeyed his orders then nothing of the following would have happened right or if haman had deposed his father and used his father as a counselor, then Haman could have rewritten the laws. So maybe Haman should have done things differently. Maybe Creon should have done things differently. 
they all could have done things differently. But I think that the tragedy of Antigone and a lot of tragedies is kind of meant to point at this sort of where does the blame fall and where can things be fixed? The way I like to to break down problems such as these when we're you know looking at a, a specific story and then trying to apply it into my own life, the Stoic idea that there is so little in our life that we have any control over. When we talk about, you know, was he at fault for this? What could Haman have done? Haman has no control over his father. He can't control the decisions that his father's going to make. He has no control over Antigone or, you know, the events that led to her death. The only act that he had any control over was his own suicide. The choice of his response to these actions that he made was the suicide. He could have, you know, the story could have played differently. He could have gone and killed his father. He could have gone and done any number of other things in the story. The only part where he had any deciding factor was his suicide in this. That's the only part I think where he at least showed his deciding factor or his, with this thought process, I think it has to do with the arrow analogy, right? As soon as the arrow leaves the bow or as soon as you release the arrow from the string, you can't control where it lands. Yeah, you can increase the probability of where it lands, but you can't control exactly where. Exactly. Yeah, so that's that's the the metaphor of the archer. Yeah, with so many aspects of our lives, we make a choice, we try and do a thing. You know, we only have control over a small part of anything that we're doing. And then once we release it out into the world, we can't influence it anymore. That whatever we have done is now going to affect the world around us. Would Creon's version of releasing the arrow be the time when he made the law or the time when he, or I guess, would they be multiple? You know, he had the option to to change it when his son was asking him to change the law. And so, you know, him, if we're going to refer to all these decisions as loosing an arrow, when Haman comes to him and, and says, hey, I'm in love with Antigone, you got to let her go. Creon, you know, if we're going to say arrows, he loses an arrow and says, no, this is what I've decided. I'm going to stick with what I've already decided. And that's, in my mind, that's him loosing the arrow. And he has no, at that point, he has no more control over the events of the story. Um, And that is evidenced because eventually a a blind seer comes and prophesies to him and he goes and tries to stop things and it it doesn't work out, right? It's, it's an interesting tragedy. I, I like the story. So that wraps up our first trip to Kolob. We talked about the way that the prisoner's dilemma or certain systems can influence the way that we make decisions or certain decisions that we make. We looked at the way that that idea interacted in the story of Antigone. And now we get to go on our first thrilling trip beyond Kolob. So open your mind and spirit, buckle down, and keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. Because we're about to go beyond, plus ultra style. about game theory and looked at it in the context of the story of Antigone, we're actually going to take that same perspective and compare it to the story of King Noah and Abinadi. I personally call the story of King Noah the tragedy of King Noah.
And here it is. One of the reasons I brought this story up is because I think it has a lot to do and is a good segue into the tragedy of King Noah, which I think that's what the story's about. I think the Antigone is just as much the tragedy as Creon as the story of Abinadi is the tragedy of King Noah. Because as we look at it, King Noah had the same sort of thing. He had somebody, he, he made changes, he made laws, and then someone came to tell him he was doing it wrong. And then someone came back to tell him he was doing it wrong. And then he suffered the consequences of that action. And I think the same limiting factors that prevented Creon from changing, because the reason Creon was afraid to change, as far as I remember, and as far as the story tells, is because he's afraid of showing weakness. He's afraid of showing inconsistency in his commandments and being untrusted by his followers, because that has serious implications in battle and in future laws. And if you look at King Noah has the same sorts of reasons behind what he does and does not do, including the fact that when he's about to repent and change things, the priests make fun of him, you know, that, oh, you're going to listen to a crazy old man, or whether or not Abinadi was old, I don't know, but you're going to listen to a crazy man, right? And so the parallels between Creon and King Noah are very, run very deep, and the parallels between Antigone and and Haman and Abinadi all run just as deep, I think. I mean, the now you didn't draw these this connection in the notes that you sent me, but there's a clear parallel as well to the way the churches run today, where they've made decisions on the LGBTQ plus community, and they've made decisions in the past on you know a variety of other ideas where they stick with their guns, they stick with their guns, and it just shoots them in the foot and they lose members, they hemorrhage members, you know, people just leaving the church in droves. And then they finally make the change. But the whole time they're resisting it, they're resisting these changes for the same reason that Creon has resisted his changes. He doesn't want to look weak. He doesn't want to change what his orders are. That's the exact same motive that the church has. They, they want the God to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. Exactly. And they want to impose this univocality on the church when it never existed in the first place. It's the exact same tragedy. You know, we could call it the tragedy of LDS church or the tragedy of Mormon prophets, where it's the same idea that they're so hesitant to make these changes for fear of looking weak or for fear of not being a prophet. When if they did implement these changes, it would be so much healthier and then you wouldn't, it wouldn't be a tragedy. It would be a comedy. I mean, the, really the only difference between the two is, is uh, the comedy, at least in, you know, ancient literature is the comedy had a happy ending and the tragedy didn't. The lesson to learn is that we can't be too prideful when we are corrected. When someone comes to us and says, this system is hurting people or this law is hurting Antigone and I love Antigone or whatever the scenario, like when the leader is presented with those problems, what do they do? And that's, that's kind of what we're examining here. Looking into what you were saying about the church and about, um, I think there are actually some really significant parts in the Book of Mormon that amplify the importance of the story of King Noah, right? Mormon wrote the Book of Mormon for our day. That's all over Mormon A. That's all over the Book of Mormon. We say it every week, basically, right? That the Book of Mormon was written for our day. Nephi saw our day. Mormon saw our day within the Book of Mormon. Whether you believe that or not, that's part of the narrative. In addition, Mormon mentions in words of Mormon 1.5 that I can't write a hundredth part of the 
things of my people. So this is the most, the Book of Mormon is the most important 1% of everything that happened in thousands of years. Whether or not you believe that, as I've said, that's part of the narrative, that's part of the story. Looking at the lost 116 manuscript pages, the story of King Noah is one of the very first stories that shows up. So it's almost like God knew when to let Martin Harris lose the pages. We want to look at it that way, which leads me to believe that the story of King Noah is one of the most important stories or more important stories of the book. Maybe Mormon was warning the prophets against a system that didn't allow them to repent because King Noah, I see no evidence in the story to point to the fact that King Noah wasn't a prophet. Looking at the story, King Noah was the son of Zenith, who was a prophet. And if you look at the lines of inheritance in the Book of Mormon, the prophetic mantle was passed from father to son to son to son to son. So Noah would be the logical next prophet. In addition to that, King Noah exercised authority that the church respected to ordain new priests, like new apostles, new preachers. Alma the elder, Alma from Mosiah, he didn't have to go, at least in the story, he didn't have to go and get reordained or re receive the priesthood from the Nephites or from uh, anybody else. He was already good to go. Yeah. And King Mosiah even gave the church to Alma, which makes Alma's authority either on par with or greater than King Mosiah's authority in the priesthood or call to a prophetic mantle. And the Book of Mormon's key idea is that God calls prophets to travel-wise or to isolated peoples. That's why the Nephites had a prophet. And so it would only make sense for King Noah to be a prophet for the people there because they were isolated. Because when King Zenith tried to send people back, they got lost. There was no communication. So it would only make sense for King Noah to be the prophet because the prophet, just like Russell Nelson today, has like changes doctrine, changes things that are taught, changes the emphasis of things. And King Noah didn't even change any of the gospel. He just emphasized the actions rather than the spirit of the law. Abinadi came in, just like Antigone, trying to call the king to repentance, trying to help the king be a better person. And I think that that is an evidence that Abinadi respected King Noah's call to be prophet. We don't need all the prophets to be perfect. You know, you mentioned, you've mentioned in your podcast that Jonas was all about exclusion, right? Racism, basically. One of my favorite stories. It's one of my favorite stories because of the way it's presented. And it's presented as Jonah basically harboring resentment for the Assyrians and refusing to listen to God because he does not want the Assyrians to be saved. So there's that. There's Bilam who makes a deal with an enemy king to corrupt the Hebrews. There's um, Caiaphas, who's the high priest. Had, he had authority as prophet. And in, within that authority, he prophesied that one man should die for the people and that, that the whole nation perish not. That's been considered in Jesus the Christ to be a prophecy. There are such things as wicked prophets. There are such things as imperfect prophets and prophets who get the gospel wrong. I mean, it is a big deal, but. Like the fact that King Noah, it's not unheard of. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I like looking at characters through different lenses. And I, when you sent me the notes on this, I thought it was interesting to look at King Noah almost as the hero of the story or like a fallen hero. 
tragic hero, if you will, where he he did have the power, he did have the authority, he was running the city, he did have the priests, but his counselors were giving him bad advice. When you look at the story like that, specifically the fact that he did consider changing his mind, but then ultimately uh, condemned Abinadi, it makes him almost more relatable. And I think relatable in the way where I, I see King Noah similar to like a Brigham Young type person. I've heard that comparison before. Yeah, he's got te- he's got the teachings. He's got you know some ideas that aren't as popular. I mean, Brigham Young didn't have the ending that King Noah did, but where you have you have someone leading a very unhealthy system, but maybe they started out with good intentions, or they started out wanting to do their best, or wanting to lead the church in a certain way. Um, again, we can't say what their motives were unless they explicitly wrote them down or told somebody, but. The connection I'm making is, you know, you fast forward you know, 30 years after he's taken over and he's you know, on his deathbed, he's so much of a different person and he's much more akin to a King Noah who, who is leading an unhealthy system, causing harm and damage when maybe that wasn't his intention from the start. Wasn't Brigham Young the prophet who lost Utah to the U.S.? I, I think he was. So... Isn't that pretty parallel to King Noah? I mean, he wasn't killed by the U.S. and he wasn't murdered by the by the members, but not not to say he's he is or isn't, but he does have more parallels, I think, than than not. And I think when I think of that and the prophets today, I think what a tragedy that they're afraid to be better because we aren't letting them. I, maybe afraid might not be exactly the right word because I wouldn't say like a Creon character would, was afraid. It was he was stubborn or he was prideful in the decisions or the previous decisions they've made, and they're sticking to their guns in such a way that ultimately leads to their downfall. And and that's what I see with the King Noah. That's what I see with the church today, where they've made these choices. You know, in Elder Oaks, he's drawn his line in the sand on the LGBTQ plus community. How can how can the church, you know, let's say let's say all 12 of the other apostles want to make a change on the LGBTQ plus community. But Elder Oaks has drawn his line in the sand so they they can't. They have to wait until he passes away. Their pride in their previous decisions, even even the decisions from from those that have passed on them imposing univocality on the scriptures and on the church as a whole is what's the, is the downfall. It's the exact same thing that you have with Creon here. That does make sense. My assumption was that Creon was afraid of multivocality because that would be the loss of his power or the loss of his respect. And that's what I saw with King Noah. Maybe they're afraid to lose their power. Maybe afraid to lose their power is, is, is um, what you were referring to. But I, I see it as a pride and unwillingness to recognize that you're wrong or that you could be wrong. And that for me is pride. Fear of losing power, but pride as a motivator. I could be wrong and you're welcome to disagree. I think that there are changes that other prophets have wanted to make, but other prophets felt like they were chained down by the idea of univocality or they were chained down by fear because God is unchanging, right? And so they were chained down by fear of changing things because that would look bad 
whether that's pride or admitting that you're wrong or just, you know, because let's say they do change the LGBTQ. How many people are going to change and how many people are going to actually believe that and how many people are going to leave the church? And that's a hard decision. That was the same problem that they were facing when they lifted the priesthood ban or the temple ban. I mean, there were members that were upset about it. There were people that are still racist today and they will still sit there in church and make racist comments about the pre-earth life or other things. I mean, the, the people with those sentiments, they may or may not leave, but the theology can shift away from them. And I think it needs to. I think so too, but I don't, I don't think homophobia has a space in Christianity. I don't think it's tenable to have ideas of homophobia in a Christian loving worldview. Part of that is the worry of the church of like, we can't lose, we want to lose as few members as possible, which I think is hard because if that is the system, then it's a tragedy that the system is causing bad decisions. The way I look at their decision-making process now is they are maintaining the system for the older generation while completely unaware that they're, that the system that they're perpetuating is not tenable for younger generations. It's not something that the younger generation wants to be a part of. I mean, you know, with exceptions, there's still believers, there's still young people that participate and will for the rest of their lives. What I mean, though, is they're choosing the generation that is passing away over the generation that will lead them into the future. So far, we've talked about the prisoner's dilemma, about different ways we can look at the consequences, about who gets the blame. And I personally think that whatever game influences the people can take credit for the good or bad things that happen. And um, Scott seems to think that it's important that we take full responsibility for our actions, which is a great way to look at it. Am I, I should not put words in your mouth. <laughs> I don't know that we have complete free will. I don't think that, you know, absolute free will exists. And I don't think that we have any power over a lot of the systems that we are born into and that, that we live in. With that being said, the position that I would take on something like this is the only the only things that we have responsible responsibility over are the ones within our control. I can't control which nation I was born into, what family I was born into, what government or economic system, or you know, if I'm put into the squid game. You know, I can't I can't control so many aspects of it. But what I do have some limited ability to influence the world around me are the way I interact within these systems. So yeah, there's an interplay between responsibility of the system and the person, but it's more, what can I do with what I have? Exactly. To the prisoner's dilemma, like would I be okay with myself if I ratted out my buddy and got him in prison? I don't feel like I could live with myself making a decision like that because I don't think it's right. I don't think it's right to take advantage of someone else. And so I'm in the system and I know that I will statistically be be penalized for it. I would go to jail for the three years because statistically my buddy's going to rat me out. His actions shouldn't influence my actions. I need to decide what's right for me, regardless of what he feels is right for him or her. 
after talking about the prisoner's dilemma and our thoughts on it, we talked about the story of Antigone, and we talked about how certain people only have a certain amount of influence and what influence do they have and what things could they change. And then after that, we drew a parallel that I see as a pretty direct parallel between Antigone and King Noah, and even Brigham Young and the prophets of our day. Those questions and those parallels lead me to ask myself, who is today's Abinadi, and who today will be burned at the stake for the simple crime of being ahead of their time? Well, you see that happening with the excommunications of the outspoken critics of the church. Even taking a person such as Sam Young, who was pushing for, for one small change. He wasn't trying to be a leader. He wasn't trying to reform the organization. He just said, hey, this is a problem that I see. I think we should address this. And the church excommunicates him, then promptly makes the change that he was talking about. I mean, it's um, I see similarities in the way that the church is run and the way that, you know, the Creon acted in, in the story or that King Noah acts in the story. One thing that I thought of or think of is Martin Luther King, right? He's a U.S. martyr. We, we did him dirty, but he's a hero now. I think, wouldn't it be so cool to see Sam Young as a hero in the church? Oh, yeah. For putting his salvation on the line, right? This is, as far as we know, he's kicked out of heaven. Whether or not that exists is debatable, but for putting his salvation on the line, because that's what he believes, to try to implement a good change. I would love to see that happen. He'll vanish from the discourse. I mean, not not that his life isn't important. He he definitely had a huge contribution. But for you know, we're, if we're going to fast forward two hundred, three hundred years in the future, if the LDS Church is still around, no one's going to know what Sam Young did and what you know influence he had on the way that these interviews take place. That's something that, at least in the main discourse of the church, like an idea like that, you know, even all these podcasts that are out, you know, my podcast or any, any of the other Mormon themed podcasts, you know, the influence that we have now is not going to be something that within the church walls is discussed ever. You know, that even, even the best changes that have come about because of pushback from anybody, that's, that's not part of the cultural discussion within the church on, on how these changes take place. Because that undercuts revelation. And I think that that's the tragedy, in my opinion. And I think that's the tragedy of King Noah and Creon, which is what it is. An unwillingness to change the systems and make them healthier. I'm not willing to die over it. So, so instead, I'll live my life in misery and watch the church shrink. I don't know. Do you live in misery? I was... Putting the putting the leaders of the church in the Creon role after you know Creon's whole family has passed away, he's continuing on as the ruler and he lives on in misery. And I was I just added as you know watching the church shrink to to connect that with the church leaders. Thanks for having me onto the show. This has been a blast. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Thanks for sticking it through and listening to the full episode. My conversation with Brock was enjoyable, and I hope that you enjoyed what we discussed as well. Whatever it is that you're doing while you're listening to podcasts, getting ready for the day, or finishing out your day and getting ready for bed, I hope that you have an excellent day or night, whichever it is for you. <laughs>